Well, I do keep uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6 open. As we come to these sort of controversial issues, it's vital that you see that what I'm saying comes from the Bible, not from my opinion or the 1950s. Um, so it's vital that you understand that what I'm saying comes from the Scriptures. All I want to do is make love to you. That, don't worry, it's a quote from a, a song. Uh, it's on my uh, iPod play- playlist, and if you know, it's by the group Heat. And I always think it was a classic, all I want to do is make love to you. Until I started listening to the, to the lyrics. And, and then you suddenly discover what the song's about. It's about a, a woman who's feeling a bit low. So what she does, is she goes and finds a, a bloke um, in a bar. They go to a, a hotel room. They have a night of passionate sex. She then slips out from under the covers before he wakes up and leaves him without ever speaking to him again. And nine months later, she has a baby. A couple of years later, she's walking along the street with her little lad, and she bumps into the bloke, who notices that the boy looks suspiciously like him. Same eyes. Awkward, you might think. But it's, it's quite a good summary of the sexual ethics of our culture today. Because our culture primarily, I think, sees sex as a solution to our emptiness, to our personal needs. So people admire the promiscuous. That'll be a shock to some of you. I was saying this to the ministry team earlier this week. Promiscuity is no longer a bad thing. The word orgy is no longer a bad thing in our culture. It's a good thing. The promiscuous are admired. We don't, we don't pity people like that. Sex, you see, has been turned into a largely self-satisfying bodily function. Uh, You don't need to have a a relationship, really, with the other person you have sex with. So uh, Tinder might well have been just started as a straightforward dating app, but now it's commonly used and commonly thought of as a way to get one-night stands. Uh, It's sort of mutual prostitution without exchanging any money. Uh, bartering of your bodies. I want sex, you want sex, we hook up on Tinder, I might buy you a meal, we have sex, we never see each other again. And that's normal. Even sex as a means of a procreation has been turned into a self-centered bodily function. You don't need any more to have a, a relationship with the person who fathers your child. You just need a signed agreement so that he'll give you the sperm in a straw and then the rest is your business, not his. And all of this is labelled as progress, development. It's the end of those those sort of of out-of-date and and repressive beliefs that we've been encumbered with since Victorian England. Now, there are two problems with that kind of thinking. The first is this, that for all the sexual freedom in our culture, people aren't any happier. In fact, now we face more relationship breakdown more instances of depression that seem to be related to relationship, more sexually related crime. In fact, the uh, two magazines, I just I get two magazines uh, a week. One is uh, the week that summarizes the news, and it's all about, of course, sex pests in politics. You know, the wrong view of sex leading to people being harassed right at the center of government over many years. The other is the Telegraph magazine. In the middle of the Telegraph magazine, I Sex Robot. It's an article about building robots for people to have sex with because they can't find a a woman or a man who fulfills their sexual desire. So we're going to create a machine for people to have sex with. You see, the first problem is that this sexual revolution, it it doesn't work. The second is this, it's not all that new. 
So uh, people have uh, tried this do-what-you-want view of sex before. In fact, in the first century in Corinth, this seaport that Paul is writing this letter to, it was so sexualized that in Paul's day, to Corinthianize was to be promiscuous. They, they turned the name of the town into a word that means to sleep around. In fact, nothing is new here under the sun. Now what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to look at what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 6 and then to 1 Corinthians 7 about sex, its place outside marriage, and then next week its place within marriage. We're going to look at marriage itself and then something about marriage breakdown and divorce and remarriage. And then we're going to look at singleness and what the Bible has to say about singleness. I think I can safely say that in every single one of those areas, the Bible will cut against our culture, but it is immensely good news. Now, as we're diving straight into the middle of a letter, it's worth just getting our bearings first and foremost. So Corinthians, the church that Paul's writing to, the church in Corinth, is a church that thinks it's made it, that it's got it sorted that they have the Christian life licked. Uh, Have a look at chapter 4 and verse 7, because look at what Paul says to them there. It gives a sort of little taste of what this church is like. Chapter 4 and verse 7, he says to them, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's a church that thinks it's better than other churches, that boasts about its Christian life. And that spiritual pride had actually led to the church's ethical downfall. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul has to challenge them because they're ignoring a man who appears to be in a sexual relationship with his stepmom, and they've turned a blind eye to it. You can hear them saying to one another, well, it's, it's actually his private life. It's, it's nothing to do with me. What, what he does in his own life, how, how could I infringe upon that? I, I'm not, not perfect. And Paul says to them, no, you are to hold people in the church to account. Don't judge people outside the church, but you are to hold him to account. And then in chapter 6, well, they don't care about sin in other people, but they do care about sin when it affects them. So he has to rebuke them because if someone has, in the church has slightly infringed upon their rights, well, they're, they're down the local law court trying to sort it out. They're self-righteous. They won't forgive one another. You see, they they don't care about sin in other people unless it affects them, and then they won't forgive other people. And that's so different to God's attitude. He cares about sin very, very much. Have a look at what Paul says God has done for people who trust in the Lord Jesus in chapter 6 and verse 11. He lists a, a whole load of different ways that people have lived lives that displease God. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 11... And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so just before we come to look at what the Bible says about sexual immorality outside marriage, let me say to you, maybe you've come here tonight and you feel dirty. Maybe you've come already feeling dirty because of your practice in this area, the way you've practiced in the past. And God says to you that in the Lord Jesus, you are washed clean through his blood shed for you at the cross. 
Maybe you've, you've come here tonight and, and you're feeling, I, I can't be above them. What am I doing amongst these people? Why, why am I here? I mean, they're all so nice and godly with their Christian smiles, and I I'm, I'm just don't deserve to be here. And God says, in the Lord Jesus, I sanctify you. I set you apart. I bring you into my people and make you holy. And maybe you've come in tonight and you just feel guilty. You feel condemned. And the Lord, God says through the Lord Jesus, I justify you. I declare you innocent because my son has died in your place, even though you're guilty. That's what's true of the Christian. You're clean. You're set apart and holy. You're declared innocent. Whatever you have done, whatever maybe you are still doing. And with that in mind, how do you behave? Well, the first thing Paul does with the Corinthians is he takes some of the things they're saying and he turns it round to, to, to show them that they're just asking the wrong questions. Look at, look at verse 12, the, the first verse. Paul says, I have the right to do anything. See how that's a quote? You say, but not everything is beneficial. In other words, they're saying, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. It, it might be that these Corinthian Christians have picked up on some of Paul's other teaching. For instance, he wrote a letter to a church in Galatia where he said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And following Jesus should be a life of freedom, free from that feeling of guilt before God because Christ has died for us, free from trying to obey some sort of law to make God love us. But but in Corinth, they took that to mean, hey, we're free to do anything we want. I've got the right to do whatever I want. And Christians today can get that wrong. Sometimes when we make decisions about the way we're going to behave, we think, well, because of God's grace, I know I'm forgiven. You know, it's all about grace, and it it doesn't matter the way that I live. I'm free to do what I want. But but Paul says, no, that's the wrong question. You see what he suggests you think about at the end of verse 12? But I will... I, but not everything is beneficial. See, that, that's what you need to be thinking. Not, am I free, but is this beneficial for me? Is this beneficial for me and for other people? Uh, can, you, can you imagine how your behavior would be totally revolutionized if before you did anything you thought, is this beneficial for me and other people? You ask yourself that question. And we could stop here this evening, couldn't we? And if we all went out and did that, that would revolutionize our lives. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because, you see, they, he quotes them again. I have the right to do anything. I'm free. And then he says, no, no, that, that's not the right question either. Do you see what he says? But I will not be mastered by anything. You see, it's not just a question of will it be beneficial for me to eat that second cream cake or will it be beneficial for me to send that grumpy email. It's a question of what will I let master me. You see, Paul's not naive. He, he knows that our selfishness, our sin, actually masters us. It Literally, it enslaves us. That's the sort of word used here. And probably sexual sin enslaves us more than any other sin. It becomes addictive. You know, it starts with the odd dodgy search on Google. Then it, then it becomes a bit more internet porn. And finally, it becomes more and more graphic and violent. I think a lot of parents today... Uh, are taken in by the fact that our kids are at home on their computers and on their smartphones and we're thinking, well, thank goodness they're not like us, drunk, having sex, down a lay-by somewhere in the back of a car. They're safely upstairs. And it's true, teenage pregnancy has fallen. Teenage, young teenage sexual activity has fallen. 
But the right, uh, rate of use of violent pornography among the teens has gone through the roof. Sex is addictive. And that's actually playing out into the sexual lives of young people. Uh, because what happens is they watch it on the screen and then they meet a girl and they think that's normal. And so that's what they try to do to them. Sex is addictive in that way, sexual sin. And so Paul says, you need to ask yourself, is this beneficial? And will this enslave me? Will this, this master me? Will it take over my life? Now, now, the problem in Corinth is they weren't bothering to ask any questions at all. He's got another quote from them that shows that in verse 13. You say, here's the quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Why does he suddenly talk about food? Well, you know this, don't you? That if you try putting food somewhere other than your stomach, it's, it's messy. It doesn't work. And then if you try putting something other than food in your stomach, it's not very good. You get rather sick. You know, the stomach is to have food. It, that's the natural way of it. So maybe in Corinth they're saying, look, the body's to have sex. Sex is for the body. The body's for sex. It's only natural. I mean, who am I to repress my sexual desires and urges? Isn't that what our culture says? Since uh, Sigmund Freud declared uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century that repressing your sexual desire was wrong, we've run with that as a culture, despite the fact that Freud had a multiple set of very dysfunctional relationships. So our culture believes repressing, repressing your sexual desire and urges is downright harmful for you. Well, they're saying it's just a body. It's going to die anyway. It doesn't matter. God's going to destroy it. It's not really that important. It's not the, the spiritual part of us. Well, Paul says, no, the body's not for sexual immorality. So two questions to ask. Is this beneficial for me and others? Will this enslave me? And then one thing to realize, just because you feel that something's right doesn't make it right. Now, the application of this passage is easy. It comes in verse 18 and verse 20. This is the only application tonight. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Or the end of verse 20, therefore honor God with your bodies. And it's worth just saying what sexual immorality is. So this is my broad biblical definition of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is deliberately doing anything that turns you on with someone who is not your husband or wife. It's deliberately doing anything that turns you on with someone who you are not married to. Yeah, that's sexual immorality. Okay, deliberately doing anything that turns you on. That'll be different for different people with someone who's not your husband or wife. And Paul knows that flee sexual immorality, that's a simple command, isn't it? But it's very hard to do. And he knows that that just hearing that's not going to change anyone's heart and make them want to live in a different way. So what he does is he stacks up the reasons why we want to live that. And the reasons are all about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing he says. Flee sexual immorality. Why? Your body matters to Jesus. You see, so the body does have a purpose, but, but it's a much higher calling than satisfying the desire for every physical urge that comes upon you. Look at the end of verse 13 and what Paul says. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's what the body is for. It's for the Lord 
and the Lord is interested in our body. You see, you can't separate the, the physical from the spiritual in your life. That the Bible doesn't. God gives you a body to serve him. That's uh, where we find true freedom in the Bible. Not in using our bodies as we want, but using our bodies as God wants us to use them. God creates us whole beings, and he's interested in every aspect of our lives. If you're not a Christian here this evening, we're here tonight not to do a little religious gathering where we make ourselves feel better about ourselves, then go on and out into the world and live as everyone else does. No, we're here tonight because we desperately need to feed on the word of God so that we can go and use our whole lives, our bodies, to serve the Lord Jesus. Any doubts that our bodies matter should have been blown away by Jesus' resurrection. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Jesus was raised a physical body from the dead. You could touch him. He ate. You could feel him. And the Bible says he's the first fruits of the resurrection. So, so what will happen for us if we trust in the Lord Jesus is that when Jesus returns to judge the world, we will be raised as he is, was, with a physical body. That's the way we will live forever with him in a perfect new creation. See, that's how much significance Jesus gives to your body. He's going to make your body eternal. We're going to have them forever. Uh, you'll be glad to know that there'll be a perfected body in heaven forever if you're a bit dissatisfied with your now. But it will be a physical body forever in God's perfect new creation. And that means everything we do with our bodies here on earth has significance. I mean, Paul's focus here is on sex in 1 Corinthians 6. But it, it could include how much we eat or don't eat, how much we exercise or don't exercise, how much booze we put in or how many drugs we put in or whether we use our hands for violence or for kindness or what we say with our mouths our whole beings matter to God and so they should matter to us you see firstly he says your body matters to Jesus so flee sexual immorality then he says your body's united to Jesus do you see that in verse 15 do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. If you're a Christian here tonight, you cannot be more closely joined to Jesus than you are. You know, being being a, a Christian is not like being a member of a golf club. You know, we're members of the Jesus club. We've signed on the dotted line and we turn up to the Jesus meetings. It's like golf, but less fun. Okay, this is like members of your body, like the limbs of your body. We're united to Jesus in the same way that your, your arm or your leg is united to you. Now, that's the huge privilege of a Christian. We're joined to Jesus, therefore we're children of God because Jesus is the Son of God. God's bound us to his Son. We, we couldn't have a, a more intimate, uh, a closer relationship with Jesus than actually being members together, united with him in one body. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who we are bound to permanently, forever. No wonder Paul says at the end of verse 15, Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! It literally says, 
make them members of a prostitute. He couldn't get a, a stronger expression than, than the never. Shall I take something that, that's joined to Jesus and, 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 and join it to a prostitute? It's a bit like imagining taking your granny or, or the queen into the, the darkened upstairs room of the party and saying, look, I um, hope you don't mind, granny, but uh, me and uh, Tracy here, we're going to have a few too many drinks and then we're going to have a shag on the bed. You just sit there and watch. That would be slightly odd, wouldn't it? But, but primarily, I don't think actually Paul's wanting us to think of Jesus on our shoulder like the little sort of um, spy there on everything we're doing. He's wanting us to think more of the, the privilege of being united to Jesus. So, for an example, it's, it's more like what happened to Kate Middleton, nice middle-class girl, lives in around Wokingham, getting on, selling party toys, and suddenly she marries Prince William, and she becomes the Duchess of Cambridge. And her status is totally changed. She's the wife of the future king of England. She has an extraordinary privilege. Wherever she goes now, she is recognized for who she is. She's bound into a royal family. And she behaves differently now, not because William's spying on her or, you know, his grandmother keeps popping up in the bedroom. No, she behaves differently now because of who she is. The extraordinary status that she has. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. We are people of an extraordinary privilege. We're bound to the very Son of God. We're members of the greatest royal family there's ever been, the one that rules not just over Britain, but but rules over the whole of creation. So so why toy around with sexual immorality? You see, I I think in the end, we we muck around with sex because we actually underestimate the intimacy of sex and we underestimate our intimacy with Jesus. We never leave Jesus at the bedroom door. We never leave Jesus at the bedroom door. He's always with us. We're bound to him. That's who we are. Look at verse 16 with me. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. See, when God created us male and female, he gave us the gift of marriage. And sex is actually the high point of intimacy in marriage. That's why we're going to see next week that if you're married, it's really important that you're having lots of good sex. And because it's the the high point of physical intimacy in marriage, the glue that God's given us, Paul quotes here from Genesis chapter 2 to point out, look, there's no such thing as casual sex. Sex is always a deeply intimate thing. It's that central act of relational unity. See, our society wants to pretend that sex doesn't have consequences, either emotionally or or spiritually or physically, but that's not just true. Sex is the God-given way to bind you to another person. And therefore, if you treat it casually, you will be scarred. And our bond with Jesus is even closer, Paul says. Verse 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You see, what Jesus said to his first disciples was that actually it was better for them that he he went to heaven because then he would come and dwell with them by his spirit. And Paul is saying here that what Jesus has done is he's come to dwell within our hearts. He is one with the very core of our beings, our spirits. He, He is right in the 
center of our souls. We could not have a deeper relationship with him. So, So let me ask you. Do you want to take the very real, relational, intimate presence of your perfectly pure, passionately loving, beautiful Savior, your life-giving King, into a sordid little sexual encounter? Or in front of a screen that's playing out something disgusting from the other side of the world? Your body's united to Jesus. It's a massive privilege. And lastly, Paul says, your body's been bought by Jesus. I love verse 18 because I think it's, it's such brilliant advice. Paul has sexual arousal down to a T. Verse 18, flee from all sexual immorality. See, my experience of sexual immorality, especially for blokes, is that the on switch works much quicker than the off switch. So so it tends to be that that people get sexually aroused quite quickly and then they find it quite hard to stop. People have said, haven't they, that male sexual arousal is like pushing a bloke off a greased ladder, off a greased slide, you know, boom, oh, off he goes. And he's down at the bottom in seconds. Whereas female sexual arousal is like trying to get someone to climb an extremely greased ladder. But, But what's true of both is... That, that if you muck around in the areas of sexual arousal, you will find it very hard to stop. That, that's what God's given you. He's given you a body that can be turned on. So, so when you start to get turned on, the idea is that you go to sexual consummation, not that you stop halfway through. Of course, that's frustrating and hard to do. And so Paul says, just flee it. Don't even go there. Don't, don't start. Run. It's, it's the sex is, is like fire. It's a very, very good thing in the right context. It's a brilliant thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a God-given thing in the right context. But it's a very dangerous thing to play with. So often I think we treat sex like children treat, say, a forest fire. You know, we think it's quite fun. We'll just strike a few matches and see what happens. And then before you know it, there's a reasonable blaze going. So we see how close we can get to the blaze. You know, can we just get close enough without fully getting incinerated? And then the wind comes along and woof sweeps us up in its destructive path. And sex, wrongly used, isn't just wrong. It's harmful. That could be, well, what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 18, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. We want to pretend there aren't any consequences of the little casual sexual encounter. That's what our our liberated world says. But our culture is actually like an addict, sexually addicted, and it's scarred to the extent that that people refuse to admit the emptiness and the pain that they feel. They they rather press on from one relationship to the next relationship to the next one, from one night stand to the next one night stand to the next one, hoping one day they'll find Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and it'll just stop. That's why people are considering building computerized sex dolls. But, but you don't leave Jesus at the bedroom door, says Paul, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. It's a verse that should warm the Christian's heart with joy. You see, there is no greater privilege 
In the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, the temple was where God himself dwelt. It was where you went to have your relationship with God restored, to hear from God's word. It's where you went if you wanted an intimate experience of the Lord your God. And you could only go in there if a blood sacrifice had been done for you. It was a holy place, a set-apart place. You didn't just wander into the temple. But now God says, because Jesus has died for you, God intimately dwells in your heart. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to go anywhere. He's with you all the time. And what, a, what a price that took. Verse 20, you were bought at a price. You know what that price is, don't you? The price of the agonizing suffering and death of his only beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God couldn't have paid a higher price so that he could dwell in our hearts by his Spirit. There is no higher price in the universe than the death of the eternal Son of God in our place. Tis mystery all. That's what we've just sung. That God would die for you and me. And therefore Paul says, because you have this enormous privilege and because it was bought at such a precious price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Glorify God with your bodies. It's about our desires. Do you want to worship God with your body? Do you want to honor the one who dwells in you? Do you want to live in a way that reflects to the world that says, I have been bought in love by God at such a price. I'm willing to be different, to be mocked for being different, to struggle with the difference, to get grief from my mates for being different, because Jesus is more precious to me. Now, that's what Paul is saying. It's not that we're to imagine Jesus the headmaster there with his checklist, seeing everything we do, ticking us off and putting us in detention when we're naughty. No, no, it's, it's we're to wonder at the enormous privilege we have, at who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of a royal family, temples, dwelling places of the very Spirit of God himself, and to wonder at the enormous cost God paid for it. And if that won't move our hearts to live differently, frankly, my friends, nothing will. I can't, I can't find a greater price than the love of God in the Lord Jesus dying for you at the cross. I can't find a more beautiful picture. I can't, I can't find a, a more moving sacrifice. I can't tell you a, a little story about someone dying for you that's better than the cross of Jesus. If the cross of Jesus that brought the Spirit of God into your heart so that you're loved intimately and secure in that forever does not move you to live differently, nothing will. Nothing will ever move you to live differently. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual arousal with anyone you're not married to. So let me just end with, with a couple of bits of, of practical advice. You are growing up in, or you are living in, a culture that is changing so rapidly. That's what's happened with the, the internet. The, the, the rate of change of, of what is regarded as acceptable and unacceptable in our culture has just gone through the roof. So we can have 50 gray shades of grey and read by middle-class mums at the school gate as though that's an entirely normal thing to read a sadomasochistic erotic thriller. Well, it's not a thriller, it's terribly written. But, but that's just a normal book. 
I mean, ask some of the guys maybe who are a little bit older here, whether in the 1970s, let alone the 1960s, that would have been a normal read on the train. We can have a Channel 4 having sex box on the TV where they get straight and gay couples to have sex in an opaque glass box. They come out and they talk to the experts about how it went. We can have Love Island with the dim lights and them having it off in the bed and we can all score who we think's got the most romantic relationship. It is just an extraordinary thing, our culture. And can I tell you now, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only going to get harder. Pornography is no longer seen as bad as long as it doesn't involve children. We're under enormous pressure. And most of the time we we just don't realize it. And whilst I'm, I'm saddened by the world out there that I think is wrecking, wrecking the lives of so many people. Actually, the Bible says we shouldn't expect people who don't follow Jesus to adopt Christian ethics. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12 just to see what Paul says 5.12 Paul says this what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church don't ever start feeling good about yourself looking out on what people who don't know Jesus do you ought to judge them they don't know Jesus that their hearts haven't been indwelt by the spirit they've not been bought by the precious blood of God why would they want to live any differently but we must judge those inside says Paul We must help each other to live for Christ. We have to be realistic as Christians how difficult that is going to be in the area of sex. So so we have to help those who are married to have good sexual relationships. We're going to see that next week. The Bible's not embarrassed about sex. Song of Songs is a book full of allegory about sex. And most of the marriage problems that I've been asked to to help with in, in the sort of 20 years I've been in ministry have been primarily because of Christian couples who have a dysfunctional sex life. That's been the primary issue I find in Christian marriages. We also have to be realistic about our struggle to flee sexual immorality. It's a problem for everyone, not just young men. Let's not just stereotype this. It's a problem for everyone. So we need to be realistic about that. We we need to watch how we feed our fantasies. We need to to watch where we are. Our smartphone means that unless you are committed to living differently for the Lord Jesus, you can access anything you want, anywhere, at any time, and no one will know about it. It doesn't matter how many controls you put on that. So so let's have friends who will challenge us and help us and we'll be honest with if we want to live wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus. And it's not just smartphones. This may sound silly, but maybe you're someone who likes reading romantic novels. There are maybe not just women, but maybe more women who like reading romantic novels. And romantic novels feed sexual fantasies. Often those sexual fantasies in the novel become quite explicit. And suddenly your husband's just not quite as good looking and a bit flabby. And, and maybe imagining having sex with someone else is just a bit more fun. It's not just the internet. We could still do it with a good old paperback. If you're a parent here, you've got to know what your children are being taught at school in the area of sex and what sexual morality is. The school is a massive battleground. And those who want to promote non-biblical sexual ethics, the school is where they are primarily doing that. And if you leave sex education to the school and then try and correct it afterwards, your children will always see you as a fuddy-duddy. 
You have to do sex education with your kids, if you're a parent, before anyone else does, because then you become the point of reference. If you tell them the facts of life in the context of the Bible, before they hear it at school, they'll check out what their friends hear and what the school says to them with you. But if their friends tell them first, or the school says, tells them first, then they take the point of reference, the point of authority somewhere else. So, so parents, we've got to be realistic about educating our kids early in terms of sex ed. I think we edu- did sex ed with our kids age seven so that they didn't go into school and hear anything. You will not protect your children by leaving them in ignorance about what proper sexual ethics are for as long as possible. They will hear it from someone other than you, and then you've lost. And this is not just a theory I'm talking about, is it? Just just as I finish, let me remind you where we started. This is a battle for all of us. Yeah, it's just another sin. We all have struggles. But, but this is, this is one that causes probably more pain than any other, for longer than any other. And as I meet with people, uh, often they will try and excuse themselves. They'll say, well, Daph, it's, it's just another sin. I mean, everyone struggles with sin, and this is just another sin. In other words, I have the right to do what I want. I've been freed by Christ. Or they say, Daph, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, you, you can't really think that. You, you're, you're very old-fashioned. In other words, the Bible's out of date. Or, Daph, you're just being a bit radical. I mean, it's unrealistic that, that we shouldn't date or we, we shouldn't kiss. I mean, it's only natural. It's only natural to do that. You see, people give the same excuses today as they were giving in Corinth in the first century. And Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Because you were bought at the cross by the blood of Jesus, into a precious royal family so that God dwells in your heart by his spirit. So honor God with your body. Should we pray together? Our Father in heaven, none of us sit here and can claim innocence in this area. In our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Our Father, we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ we are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified. We are those completely clean completely holy, completely righteous before you because of the blood of Jesus shed in our place. We thank you that we were bought at such a great cost. We thank you, therefore, that you dwell in our hearts by your Spirit. We're temples of your Holy Spirit. Our Father, please forgive us our past failure. Please help us to resolve in the present to live for the Lord Jesus. Please, our Father, in the future, would we honor him with our bodies. For his name's sake, amen.